welcome back the 831 podcast episode 46 so um we're getting these out the last one was very well received episode 45 with matty hud and graham crease was superbly received thank you all very much for your feedback on that one obviously they're both great guys so i had no doubt that it would be well received by everybody the subject matters that we touched on, you know, male suicide and uh, suicide in general and having those little dangerous thoughts and stuff every now and again. We've had lots of great feedback from that. And if you haven't listened, please go and have a listen to that one. Please share. Um, share. If I can ask for you guys to do anything for me, it would be to share the podcast, please. Um, if I can get some more shares, that would be superb. Thank you very much. But yeah, that one in particular was really good. I really enjoyed it. It was fun, a large chat, but also we covered some conversations that I think do need to be had more. And we had them. So yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Now, as always, this podcast is sponsored by and forever will be sponsored by Trojan Fitness, Trojan Nutrition Bristol. They've supported me throughout my whole career, so I will continue to support them. Uh, Sweatbox MMA, A3 Academy, Pedro Bassa BJJ, all of these people have helped me through my career, and so the podcast is also sponsored by them. We are looking for more sponsors, so if you're interested, don't think it costs lots of money. It might not cost you anything at all. If you're someone cool or doing something really interesting, hit me up. We can work something out. It might just be a, a friendly handshake, and it just gets you on the podcast. If I like what you're doing, I'll give you a shout. I'll give you a mention. That's what these things are all about. It's not about financial gain. It's just about you know sharing messages. So yeah, hit me up if you uh, are interested in being a sponsor of the podcast. But until then, this is episode 46, Jorg Ewald. Um, I met Jorg competition paragliding. Uh, Really cool guy, really interesting, very intelligent. Has had a big impact in the competition paragliding scene. But last year he had a really horrendous paragliding accident. Um, Life-changing, possibly, paragliding accident. And we talk about his career, his accident, his recovery, his rehab, the mental state, the psychology, the physiology. And this is a really interesting story. You don't have to be into paragliding. There's zero technical paragliding talk. It's how you got into paragliding, what he does and what happened in his accident and all those sorts of things. So, yeah. Have a listen. You should enjoy it. Yorg's really interesting. He's also really fun. So I think you'll enjoy it. I really enjoyed doing this one. But until then, yeah, I'll catch you on the next one. This is episode 46, Yorgy Wald. Yorg, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, Wesley. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you're very welcome. You're uh, you're doing me the favor here being my guest. How are you? How are things? Uh, things are great. Um, you know, uh, I mean, you know, I had a little accident last summer. or yeah. Not a little one, a big one. Uh, but recovery has been pretty good. And I had some more surgery five weeks ago. Uh, and that made a big difference. And since then, I've been on the up and up. Uh, walking again with crutches and almost walking without crutches. Long uh, recovery process. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been six months now since the accident. And I'm at this weird place right now where walking with crutches is too easy. 
and walking with them without them is too hard so i never know what to do my, oh. my doctors are very clear what i should be doing but uh yeah it's, it's i guess it's uh, boring yeah it's, it's boring and it's hard to listen to them those doctors when you want to push further what's the situation like there with um covid and stuff are you restricted at the moment is it quite open um i mean c compared to everybody else in the world uh we're very open uh, if you listen to some of the people around here, we're like in hell. Uh, <laughs> so they, they have really problems adjusting. Now, uh, shops opened again Monday. Uh, the things that affect me most right now is uh, restaurants are closed and the gyms are closed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same cool. here. That's the, especially for, for myself, because I teach obviously mm -hmm. in a gym, teach MMA and stuff. So gyms being closed is something that I really notice. But yeah, restaurants as well is a thing. You forget you forget how nice it is to just go and eat somewhere and <laughs> chill with friends. But hopefully we're the UK are on their way to, to coming back out, as it were. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a mm -hmm. long road, and that's if there's not any more cock-ups. But hopefully we're on the way back, and hopefully flying can resume here shortly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flying has not been banned uh, this time around, so people are flying. Uh, it's just tandems are not allowed right now, unless it's somebody, with somebody who lives in the same uh, household as yourself. Mm -hmm. But it's not really something I'm much concerned about right now, <laughs> <I bet. laughs> for interesting reasons. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, I'm so looking forward to flying again, but that will come when it comes. Right now, the priority is um, getting to walk again and then yeah. do a little running and then uh, then we'll talk about flying. Have you, uh, before sort of your accident, um, over the years, have you had any part of your life where you've been sort of uh, athletic or sporting and rehab and training has been a, a big part of your life or is it now sort of a, a you know you've just done it to tick over and now because you're rehabbing from this injury I guess it's very different uh yeah but I, I was I, yeah I'm pretty lucky in that I I've been doing sports since I was a teenager mm -hmm. so I think it was 15 when my uncle dragged me into a karate lesson and I yeah that's when it started so I've been in kind of an athletic mindset and training most of my life. Yeah. And actually, when, when I was in hospital first time around and they explained to me that the next step is rehab, I had no idea about all these things, what was going on, because I had not, never been that badly injured, fortunately, before. Yeah. But when they told me, yeah, the next step is you're going into rehab, and I had this vision of, yeah, I'm going to training camp. <laughs> 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 and well the first couple of weeks were not quite training camp because i was lying in bed unable to move at all but over time it got pretty good and now with the surgery i had in january i had to go back to rehab for three weeks and that was really that was a very intense very fun very great training camp for three weeks that was really good yeah i bet that's uh physically and mentally i bet that was quite quite a push quite chat i bet it's really challenging but i bet it was nice to finally be able to get your teeth into something and say right we're, we're doing something now we're progressing yeah yeah especially after lying on your back for four weeks and yeah. not being able to move at all i mean if i wanted to turn over i had to call a nurse 
that's how bad it was. And uh, somebody who likes moving, likes using their body, it's it's a little bit of torture. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like it builds character, but it's <laughs> good. <laughs> um, so before we touch on your your accident, which we will, I am going to get you to talk in depth about your accident, obviously. Um, but I mean, you and I met on the on the comp scene, so I I guess you are known widely through the comp scene and also through your obviously with Valerium and stuff. But I think I'd like to know sort of how you came to paragliding, what your journey was to get here, really, because that's okay. I think that's the fun bit of everybody's story is because <laughs> it, it's so varied. There's so many different people in yep. paragliding, right? Everybody's story yep. is so unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, my story starts when I was a kid and I had those dreams of flying by myself. I don't know if you had them. I found out like f- about 50% of the population, if you ask them, if you when you were a kid, did you dream about flying? Uh, about half of them say, yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, did you have those dreams? I did because I flew birds of prey as well. So because I was flying birds of prey, I always dreamt of, I like to go really fast. So I have motorbikes. Uh-huh. I like to go really fast and then I, I liked the thought of being separated from from the ground and being in a wingsuit or or mm-hmm. flying somehow, you know. Yeah. So, but you had those dreams when you were a kid of really yeah. pushed off the ground. Yeah. So I had those too, and I, that's uh, I was really really fond of those dreams of being able to fly over the landscape and everything. Uh, my father was a sailplane pilot, so we spent basically every weekend in summer and all vacations and everything we've, we spent on the airstrip. Uh, so I grew up with uh, looking up into the sky all the time, looking at air, whatever was going on up there. Uh, but when I was about 16, 17, when I, I was old enough to become a sailplane pilot, I was not really interested because I, over the time, I'd noticed how much work it was, uh, especially as a student there, you spent a lot of time working so that others could fly. And my time was very limited because I was really involved with, uh, with karate. So I didn't think it was good. And then a colleague mentioned paragliding to me and I investigated that a little bit and found out, yeah, that's where you have your own, uh, your own air aircraft on your backpack and you can go fly whenever you want. You don't need assistance. You don't need anybody else to work for you and you don't need to work for others. So that seemed really attractive. <laughs> and so, uh, while I was a student in 92, I took a year off to work to get, earn enough money to to go take paragliding lessons. And that's when it started. So I, I started in 92, uh, got, made the, the certification in 93. For the first few years, I did not fly a lot, maybe 20, 30 hours, because I was still yeah very involved with karate. And I was always thinking I had to wait for the perfect weather the perfect days yeah so all the 90 percent days i skipped i didn't think they were good enough uh so i didn't progress much and i didn't go forward a lot so the first few years like seven eight years i did not fly along wow so you you say you were involved heavily in karate did you compete and stuff or did you just yeah you just train like you competed yeah yeah i competed 
but uh, it was slightly different kind of uh, martial arts than what you're doing. It was the very traditional, very formal Japanese karate with the white cheeks and the color belts and everything. Yeah. And yeah, we uh, I competed in national competitions. I was in the national squad for a while for juniors. Uh, and then as a as an adult, uh, there was one round, one, two years where we trained really hard to become Swiss champions with a team. We almost made it, we came vice, uh, so we came second on oh, the wow. silver. Uh, and I got fifth, I think, in that, that year. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's still competitive martial art, obviously what i do is now the 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 popular thing um i've also been doing it for 18 years so it's not as popular when i first started but it's traditional martial arts like i'm from judo originally so a traditional mm-hmm. martial art as well but uh mm-hmm. yeah traditional martial arts like karate and karate competitions back in 92 93 94 95 they were the only big thing you could compete in they were massive big like karate kumites and stuff you know they were the mm-hmm the big deal so yeah, yeah. yeah you, must have, you must have been training quite, to be national team you must have been training quite regularly and quite hard yeah like five times a week and then the weekends there was more classes or uh, or tournaments yeah so yeah uh and that was all on the side of studying so <laughs> my days were pretty <laughs> packed yeah and also it's nice to no wonder you were dreaming about flying so much because i'm the same there's a certain amount that once you're being punched and kicked is amazing how much more appealing flying becomes (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah so So, um so you so for the first few years you weren't really you were just dabbling when you could uh overestimating really the conditions you needed to fly but then i guess you got stuck into it from there and where did it lead you cross-country pilot or yeah i mean it started out basically when i moved to california uh because in california i lived in the san francisco bay area Mm -hmm. and yeah you could do uh coastal soaring there and i in the beginning i was really fond of that because uh it's like all you can eat buffet coming from switzerland where conditions are often not so you can fly and then you go coastal soaring and it's like yeah you hang in there for two hours three hours you don't even need to work for it no thermals needed so it was was fun but after a while i yeah i had enough of that i wanted to go thermal flying and in the bay area if you want to go thermal flying usually you go away there are a few thermal sites they're not very uh, consistent so usually the club there they go away for the weekend so it was completely different mindset from here in switzerland where i always thought well if it turns good i can still go and there is like you commit for the whole weekend whether it's really good or not if it looks flyable the club would leave for for one of those sites which were like five six seven hours away and we'd be there for the weekend. So I start flying in not 100%, but 90%, 80% conditions. Uh, enjoying that a lot, learning a lot, guiding better. And we actually, uh, with the club, some pilots from the club, we went down to Mexico once uh, for a week or so to fly. 
And while I was there in Tapalpa at launch over the days, more and more foreigners arrived. I mean, in the beginning, it was just us, the Americans. And more and more of those guys would arrive and they looked really sporty. They were flying wings I had never seen before. And so I asked, I heard, overheard some, oh, you're Swiss, so where are you from? What are you doing here? Uh, this is the World Cup. Um, what's the World Cup? Uh, well, it's a competition series and we compete all over the world and yeah, that, that's us. So uh, that's my first contact with the comp scene at all. And I watched those guys and girls flying and I was blown away. And I decided if I grow up or when I grow up, I want to fly with those guys. Yeah, that's, I guess, uh, you, when you first see that gaggle of competitive pilots, I mean, I remember before I, before I really started comp flying, some small comps in the UK, I was on mm -hmm. Annecy and the PWC came to Annecy and mm -hmm. they launched. And I could just remember when everyone's, I was like, I'm definitely going to be flying comps then. It was just <laughs> to watch all those great pilots in high performance wings all moving like so like harmoniously in yeah. a tight little term. I was like, yeah, yeah I guess, I guess yeah, I'm going to be better than those. Then. That's, what, that's how it should be, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So, so I went home and I was like, where can I compete? How can I, what do I need to do? So I got really interested in that. And at the very same time, I, uh, I was kind of, I, I had to retire from karate. I competed uh, in the US nationals twice uh, and I got really badly hurt and I couldn't do kicks anymore. So, and the kicks were my favorites and I have really long legs. So kicks were yeah. really fun. Uh, so I couldn't do them anymore. I had to retire from karate. I didn't like it anymore. So I, I, it was a nice transition from one sport where I was really involved with and uh, worked hard for it. And it had been an important part of my life. And then along came, yeah, I met those guys. I realized there is competing in paragliding and I got involved in that. And because I had this kind of sporty training mindset, I was like, I noticed most pilots, if they compete, all they do is go to competitions and then they fly by themselves every now and then. But basically, yeah, there's no real trainings, let's say, for competitions. And I was like, I, I don't know anything about this and I, I need to train. I need to work out how to, how to do things. So uh, I heard that there was a competition series or a friendly uh, cross-country league they called it in southern california i went there a couple of times drove all the way from san francisco to the la area uh, and it was canceled twice when i got there so it was not much fun uh, so i decided to start a series like that in northern california and so it's the yeah northern california cross-country league and we went out I think it was one weekend per month. We went somewhere, we tried to set tasks, we flew them. I didn't get very far usually. And we did the thing with downloading tracks and then evaluating them, looking at them, comparing them. And that was a lot of fun for everybody. And when I left the Bay Area after a couple of years, um, one of my friends there, Jack, he took over and I think it's still running. The series is still going on, so it's great fun. Yeah, that's uh, it. to go from to go from limited involvement, well, no involvement in any competitive paragliding, to then you see this little 
carrot dangling. Come, come and fly with us, and you go, and you can. And then you're like, well, stuff this. I'm just going to set. I think that speaks to maybe like a, a competitive mindset, a, a, a go getter. Like, well, I want to do this, so I need to go out and do this. You know, yeah. let's. So yeah, yeah, I've got nothing here. Let's start it. Let's just let's show some <laughs> initiative and let's start it. That's a pilot's mindset, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it was an incredible learning experience this way. It was not just me going there and doing whatever task setters would do. I, I was way more involved right from the beginning, uh, involved in task setting, scoring and all that. And I also noticed some of the flaws in the whole in this whole world, how, how things were done. Yeah, not in an ideal world. And I am somebody who tries to make things more perfect whenever I come across things that could be done better. I, I try to improve them. Uh, yeah, then I came back to Switzerland, uh, entered the Swiss uh, Paragliding League. Uh, I mean, I had done okay in the US. Uh, the last US Open, I came seventh on the sports wing, which was quite okay. Mm -hmm. And I came here and I just simply stood no chance. I was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the level was a little different here, a little higher. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, eventually I made it into the World Cup and into the Swiss League and uh, yeah, even into the Swiss quad. Uh, one year, 2010, I was member of the Swiss team for the Europeans. That's the Europeans where it rained for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to get in the in the in the team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we I, um, so for you, to... I guess for you, comp flying was your lead into cross country flying. It wasn't cross country flying that led you into comp flying. I mean, I had dabbled with cross country flying before that, but mm. literally my first cross country flight took place eight years after I started flying. Wow. And I noticed that there is a lot of room for improvement. And I also, when I, when I found out about competitions, I realized that competitions are the perfect training ground for, for cross-country flying. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that's what it was. I mean, on the weekends here in Switzerland, when we did not have anything, any competitions going, uh, we would, just go out and fly cross country and it got better and better. And I did the first year I was back in Switzerland, I did my first 100 K flight and then two other really fantastic flights. And uh, I noticed it, it's getting better. Yeah. So it, for me, it, there, it, it was always both. It was always flying competitively, maybe not that far, but very high intensity and also take whatever conditions are thrown at you and then taking that knowledge and going back to flying my own cross country flights, uh, usually in better conditions, usually longer, but every now and then you get somewhere where you're stuck, you don't know how to continue. And then the know how the, the experience from the competitions really, really help you. Yeah. I think there's a possibly a bit too much emphasis on the two things being separate as in, you know, cross-country flying and competition flying. Well, the only difference is th this one involves a lot of other people and you're trying to beat them. But the principles, if you fly competition flights properly, if you can apply those principles then to your own cross-country flying, 
will hugely improve your cross-country flying. Absolutely. And whilst that's improving your cross-country flying, any elements that you that you discover from that with the freedom that you have to make decisions, because mm-hmm. like I was once told, if you have to make a decision when comp flying, you're already you've already made a mistake. So <laughs> which makes sense. Mm. But in, in cross-country flying, I might be on my own. All the decisions are mine. So that that helps build the principles that you can in, then implement into your comp flying and improve as a pilot, I guess. So I, like the, the emphasis on them being two separate things is a bit overstated, possibly. I absolutely agree. And here in Switzerland, I mean, we had several cases where there was a lot of crossover where, like, I mean, the best cross-country pilot here, Kriegel Maurer, he also used to be the top, top, top-notch uh, competition pilot. Yeah. And we, we had it the other way around where the, the guy who did the most fantastic uh, cross-country flights in Switzerland for several years, eventually he joined us in the, in the, in the competition scene and he did really well there too. But and then he went back and he says he, his cross-country flying came out a step or two steps better than before because in the league, in the comp scene, that's where he learned to fly fast. And he got to the point where flying, it was all to, to do these flights that, uh, or to do the flights we, we're doing anyway now, the, the big triangles, you have to be able to fly fast and to yeah. fly fast. You learn that in competitions. You don't learn that by yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think uh, that's, I, uh, there is a big thing in the UK about encouraging younger pilots to fly competition wise, but smaller comps within the, in the UK. And I think, you know, it's a bit, I know so many pilots in the UK who are struggling to go XC and I'm like, it's, because you're trying to go cross country, just go turn up on the day when everyone's going cross country and just go follow people and try and stick mm-hmm. with a gaggle or join. We have things like the BCC and stuff here, like low, really mm-hmm. low level comps for guys on sports mm-hmm. gliders in below sports class in below and stuff. I'm like, go mm-hmm. to them, go, yeah. go there, be, be involved in little mini competitions because mm-hmm. you have a lot more chance of flying far. If other people are flying far. Yeah. To some extent to me, competitions are cross-country flying for beginners and that's why i like it so much for myself (laughs) uh i mean you come to a place that has been chosen as at least here when we fly for the weekends the place has been chosen as the best location in all of switzerland by somebody who knows really what they're doing Mm -hmm. you go there you get a more weather information and you could possibly swallow and way more than you could possibly drag up yourself. Uh, You get a task set that is probably doable given the current conditions, which if I had to do that every time myself, I probably fail. Uh, You have tons of really good pilots around you, so you can look at them, how they do it and follow them and do the same task. And in most competitions, if you land out, it's no big deal because the organizer comes and picks you up. It's really like, it's, it's cross-country flying, but made very, very, very simple. Yeah, and exactly. If you get good at that, you may enjoy that as, as, as a sport and stick with it, or you just may use it as a, a stepping stone to, to go flying yourself, learning enough about it to go flying yourself. In either way, I think it's a great way to start out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's exactly. I I completely agree. 
um, from the comps that I've done. And it's so the community is so much fun. It's so weather holds can be really fun. You know, like rainy days can be really fun as well because <laughs> yeah. there's a group of people who all want to fly. So yeah. you're surrounded with each other. But it's, you know, it, it's a great social aspect in comp flying because you're surrounded by like-minded people mm-hmm. who are all... Yeah, yeah. A little bit crazy because we have to be to do what we do but you're all stuck in this position where you can't do the thing that you want to do so yeah i really like it i like the whole comp scene but um so how did it so you progressed from there and then what did your how did your comp career progress what did you were you striving to be better or get better at comps or because you also have a lot of uh, input involvement around scoring systems and stuff as well, which we can't cover on this podcast because I've tried to go. <laughs> I've, oh, I've listened to your talks. I've watched videos. And still part of me goes, I'm just going to have to turn up and try and go fast. Because just, <laughs> just, it's so Absolutely. Difficult. That's a good, good strategy. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole on the organization part, I mean, as I told you, I started this series, so I, I was involved already there a little bit. I, I knew a little bit about how scoring and, and task setting works. And as I kind of climbed the ranks within the Swiss League, uh, I became an, basically an informal technical advisor to the Swiss League. Uh, whenever technical questions came up of uh, any kind, then uh, I would, uh, they would ask me, uh and then i think it was 2011 yeah they had changed something in the rules uh for scoring how yeah i think how stop tasks would be scored and i noticed that nobody was taking care of that in the implementation so the rule was set but it was not implemented uh, and a couple of months before the World Championships, I asked the question to the president of CIVL at that time. Uh, by the way, uh, is anybody going to do that? Because uh, you approved it in February and uh, it's like one or two months till the World Championships. And he was like, um, yeah, can you do it? <laughs> <laughs> because he knew I was a software engineer. Uh, so that's how I got involved in the development of FS, the, the scoring software that Siavila had been using. The, the guy who'd mainly worked on it up to that point, he had kind of lost interest. He didn't want to move, work, uh, put too much time into it anymore. So he basically handed it over to me. I implemented those two changes and thought, yeah, now I'm done with it. And as soon as I handed that off and we really uh, published the release, uh august uh, the president asked okay great can you please uh like take over maintenance and software engineering for us <laughs> <laughs> and yeah so i did so i took over both uh fs the scoring tool and the wprs our world ranking system uh, yeah. i've been yeah maintaining them keeping them alive for the last couple of years and for the last two or three years, I've worked on getting replaced. So uh, both systems are being replaced now. There are newer systems under development and they should come out this year or next year. And uh, I'm not really involved in those, so I can slowly move back into a second yeah. role again. <laughs> yeah, it's a, 
Yeah, it's an area that still sort of blows my mind. The scoring, the <laughs> points, the we like we've got Harry blocks them. So we when when I have a question, I'm like Harry, and then Harry yeah. knows he, he's he's up to date on everything. So mm-hmm. like we just literally look at Harry and go what? So he knows he's worked everything out on the bus journey home. He already knows who's won and who's lost. I'm not have to wait until the sheets printed out. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's uh, interesting as well that even for systems that have been in place for a while and seem to be doing fine, you, from the talk that you gave at the British Championships, you're finding little areas where you think it can be improved, but not only the scoring, that will improve the way that people race as well, which is quite interesting. You know, the fact that you've, you've looked further at that, it's not just about improving the scoring system, it's about can we improve our sport? Yeah, Uh, that's all basically because I'm a really lazy person and this, (laughs) how how complicated everything, it's just yeah, I'm too lazy for all this stuff. So I, I want it to be simple. I want it to be easy. I also see people every now and then. I mean, we talked about encouraging people to start competing and all. And I see them often. I, I see them kind of put off by the complexity of things in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever you start a new sport at a competitive level, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge. And I think there's a lot we can do to ease that and make it easier and simpler to understand for for newcomers, for old timers like myself, uh, for the media, for spectators, for everybody involved, basically. So that's kind of a red line that goes through most things I do. I I like it simple because I'm a lazy guy. (laughs) I mean, I guess that um, that I think is one of the reasons I love your instrument. So I use a Valerium. You, uh, you, I own, would own be the right word? You own Valerium? You started Valerium or how, how did it, what, what's, <laughs> you're, you have an involvement with him, Valerium. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. That's a very, very accurate way to put it. Uh, yeah. So go well, on. Yeah. So like, I, what I like about the, the system is, it's just so bloody easy to use. It's just so I I don't fly with any maps on it or anything at all. I use it for mainly comps and I fl- fly it with a with the task in. It's so simple to use for a competition instrument. And then I have Fly Sky High or XE Track or something next to it because I can have really detailed maps, which you find out you don't actually really need that often when you're flying competition tasks. So when I have a competition task i have my valerium set up with all the information that i need everything that i need to calculate calculate and wind speed etc etc and then if i want to see where i am on a map i can just look at one of the other ones that has a really clear colorful display but i love it i love it for cross-country flying in the uk it can be kept simple the fact that it has like a qwerty keyboard you can use it with gloves you can it just it just seems to work and be simple you know thank you can we clarify that I did not pay you to go on? <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't. I haven't even got. A, I haven't even had a Valerium off of you. So I, I bought that off somebody else. So you, I'm yeah. not been funded <laughs> by you yet. Yeah. Uh, thank you. You basically yeah drove home all the points that I was trying to make with my work there. So <laughs> what's my involvement with Valerium right now? It's very little because um, due to my injuries, I'm. 
uh, I'm deemed incapable of working uh, for 100%. So my, my job right now is to get healthy again, which is mm -hmm. fabulous. Yeah. It gives me really time to concentrate on getting up to my legs again. But so the, the, the story is, or goes back well, about 10 years or even more when I bought a, a, a Flytech uh, Vario. So the company that was known throughout the world as Flytech, as, as the Vario manufacturer, I bought a, a Vario from them. And I was one of those pesky, uh, annoying customers who kept talking to them, calling them, sending emails. <laughs> hey, come on, you can do things better. This doesn't work. And if, you want, if I want to use it in a competition, then you need to change this and this and that. Uh, over after a while, they, uh, they actually employed me. That's how things go. If you're annoying enough, they employ you. Uh, <laughs> uh, and for a while, I, I worked for them, small, small percentage, part time. Uh, and it was the idea that I would eventually transition over to them, but somehow that didn't work out. So after a year, I stopped working for them. And, moved on and then 2014 the founders the flytech founders called me and said oh, yeah we we need to stop we're getting too old we have two other companies that we need to take care of uh do you want to take over the company and i was like yes i want but i can't pay you anything so <laughs> so we found a way to do it where i brought an, an investor first and then a whole group of investors eventually and I, uh, I started, uh, or I worked there as the general manager or CEO, just company that small, uh, the term CEO seems a little odd. So I, I call myself the general manager and I took that company over. It had 35 employees. It was Flytech and Preuniger in Germany. It was all one company. Uh, but. The company didn't do very well at that time, uh, so the, I understood why the founders wanted to leave it. Uh, but it took me about one or two, or took us all about one or two years to to really notice that the company was basically dead by the time we had taken it over. And we invested a lot of time, a lot of energy, and even more money to make it fly again. And in that. We, we tried so many things to to accomplish that and one of that was a rename of the company because we sold the name Flytech. At one point that was the only thing we could do to get some money in was selling the name Flytech and some of the Varios. So we did that. And so we were in the interesting position where we had to find a new name for our company and we chose Valerium. Uh, so the company is still the same. It's this company that used to be Flytech here in Switzerland. Uh, it has produced Varios since the early 80s. Uh, it just it has a new name now and it's very much uh, smaller than it used to be. Like in the, the last couple of years, it was myself and two part-time employees who do mainly repairs and manufacturing. But I mean, so it's... Uh... You, you with the name Valerium, people are going to think it's like a new, like it's new. So they're going to see it and it's like, oh, this is new. But actually, it's built on uh, built on lots of experience, 
built on previous Flytech um, equipment. So it's not actually a new system. It's just very much improved, rebranded. Um, so if you're seeing the name Valerium, you're not, it's not a new, something new. It's, oh, well, we need to let them find their feet. This is actually a well-established uh, business or well-established model that you just updated and made better. Yeah, or yeah, that's what what our goal is was or is that uh, using this experience that we have. And I mean, when I say it's just myself and those two employees, of course, we have all the four, uh, most of the former employees. They're still available. They're still friends. They help us out. Uh, some of them even work for us part time uh, or as freelancers. So yeah, the experience is there. Everything. It's just we had to change the name. At least in the paragliding sector, we were able, we were fortunate to keep the name Flytech in the ballooning world, which was very cool because uh, balloonists, I found out over time, balloonists don't talk about varios or instruments. They talk about Flytechs. So for them, the thing you put on your balloon that tells you how high you are and how whether you're going up and down, that's always a Flytech. Wow, I didn't even consider that they would have one either. That's, yeah, they that's do. so stupid to, to be involved in paragliding and to not think a balloon would have an instrument. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> yeah, and actually, if you look at balloons, in like nine cases out of ten, it will be a fly tech. So wow. uh, they're pretty, pretty common. And that's what has kept us over water over the last few years now. Because we're trying to re-establish Valerium uh, as a brand for paragliding. And that takes time. It takes, as you say, people will look at it as, oh, there's something new. Uh, will they still be around next year? Like all the other new companies, it's, you need to overcome that initial resistance a little bit. So that's how why we're really happy to have the balloonists also. Yeah, I guess it, it helps you keep your head above water while you're developing the other thing. But I mean, I I can't speak highly enough of it. When I had the money to buy whatever instrument I wanted, um, lots of people on the comp scene use UDs. I couldn't stand how difficult they were. Um, people who've been using them for a long time, would I'd still see them sometimes scratching their heads about certain things. And I looked at it, the, the, the maps didn't look right to me. It just didn't look how I wanted it to be, you know, an instrument to be. And I really love the grayscale uh, so, uh, appearance of things, black and white. This is like easy to see. Boom! I look down, I see it. There's no glare. And then I've got my phone for my for something more intricate. So when I started using it, I really was yeah, I was blown away at how easy it was. Within one flight, I was like, this is my instrument. I'm <laughs> this this is what. Wow. Oh, you're <laughs> blowing me away now. Yeah. Um, I hope can't see how I'm blushing in the video. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, it just works, you know, it just, you know, if, if I thought it was rubbish, I just wouldn't have bought it up, but um, literally on my flight. You would flight, tell yeah, me, right? <laughs> yeah, secretly, maybe, in, a, on a, in an email where you can answer me back. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I, I honestly, I use it, it's on my flight deck, and I have the availability to have whatever instrument I wanted to buy, I bought a Valerium, you know, and I'm over the moon with it. And other people I spoke to have compared them, who have used them and compared them, all say the same thing. I'll keep my Valerium. It's, you know, I couldn't stress to people enough, try one if you want a basic unit, as in it, 
everything about it is just made simple for you to use. The input, volume controls, you can use gloves, the depressed buttons, all of these things. You don't need a stylus, you know? This, all of these things are, there seems to be very thought out for uh, a pilot who's flying in a competition and doesn't have to do much, doesn't have to do much with their instrument, which yeah. is what I like. Yeah. And well. all goes back to what I said before. I'm a lazy person, so I, I want it to be simple. <laughs> and I found out that a lot of people appreciate that, appreciate the, the mindset of the lazy person because that may, allows them to be lazy as well. And It's crazy well. that simplicity is now innovative. <laughs> like if you look at iPhones, I'm not an iPhone user, but the whole thing of iPhones are their simplicity. iPhone users will say Android phones are too complicated. I'm an Android user, and simplicity seems to be innovation now. Yeah, it's always because it, we found out it takes a lot of work to make something so simple that somebody who was not involved in the development can use it just uh, yeah without even thinking about it to make. Something intuitive to use is much more work than just doing something and then letting the user figure it out. Uh, we sometimes took three, four, five iterations until we were happy with, and our, our test users were happy with how things were. And of course, we could have gone out with the first version and told people, well, read the manual and you'll figure it out and you'll get used to it. But that's, yeah, that. That wasn't quite how I wanted it to be done. I guess that's the perfectionist side of you. <laughs> in the, you know, you can say you're you can say you're lazy, um, which is quite self-deprecating. I know, but it's uh, it's the perfectionist in you is the one who says like the excitement. Like, this is ready to go. This is ready to go. And then you stand back and say, it's not quite. We can just mm. let's just take another few bits and tweak a few things. And then when you think it's ready to go, you're like, it's ready to go, but I'll just have another look and just see if there's <laughs> anything else. So it, that it's the opposite to lazy, really. It's that perfectionist in you looking at things well, and thinking, we if can you don't tweak have to this. do the work yourself, you know, I had my developers at that time. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suspect looking after them is just as much work as doing it yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nearly, but it was it was great uh, at that time. My brother was actually running, uh, heading the software development, and he and another pilot, uh, Michael Moretti, uh, the two of them, they developed most of the software that you're using now uh, on the P1. And the three of us, it was just so great. I mean, Michael and I, we were comp competition pilots at that time. Uh, so we really wanted to, we had a really clear understanding of what things should be and how to do them. And my brother had just started becoming a paraglider pilot. So he looked at it from a completely different angle. He was a beginner pilot. Uh, and the three of us working together was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it seems to have been the, the perfect package this far. So, uh, hopefully it continues to go down that road and that, that Valerium still keeps pride of place on my flight there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we we're sort of approaching the bit now, mate, where we have to cover this accident of yours. Now we uh, <laughs> we've got we we know that you're flying and we've got the Valerium and stuff. But then, as you said last year, it was last year or the year or the yeah, year yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, last year. Yeah, last year you are, uh, and if I remember rightly, it was in a comp, right? Um, yeah, it was during the World Cup in here in Switzerland. Yeah. Isn't this? Have you yeah. flown? Isn't this? 
No, I was actually, I registered for a competentist and of course it's got a reputation. It's got a really bad reputation for being quite full on dissentist. It can be like a real workout. It's Alpine flying, but yeah. to the best. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was meant to fly, um, I think maybe a pre-PWC there or something. Oh, so, or maybe the Swiss Nationals last year. Oh, Swiss Nationals. Was that the one that was really bad weather? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the the one that I was meant to fly and I didn't because the forecast was looking bad, so I saved the money and didn't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, if you get a chance, you still I think you'd you'd enjoy it because it's yeah. really it's alpine flying. Uh, I mean, in the center of the Alps, we have Fiesch, uh, where we had the Swiss Nationals last year, and then we have Dizentis, and between those, I definitely prefer Dizentis. It has way more options. To, uh, yeah, the, the landscapes are mind-blowing in both places, but in Dizentis, you have way more options in terms of tasks, and it's beautiful. It's really great up there. So, yeah, we had the World Cup there last August, uh, and... I mean, I, I had flown, I had not flown enough in the Alps last year because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, we basically, we missed the whole spring season and also later on, early summer, a lot of the comps that we had planned, they were canceled either because of COVID or then because of the weather. So even though I had a really high number of hours because I'd flown like 50 hours in Colombia in January, uh my the number of alpine flying hours was for that year my training level for alpine flying was not that high and during the swiss nationals two weeks before in fiesch i the first couple of days i did not feel very comfortable but uh over time it got better and better and then we had a break one week and then the world cup came on and uh i felt fine there i felt really good I enjoyed it a lot. Training day was fabulous. Playing over the glacier in the clouds it was fantastic. Uh, I have to say the accident itself, I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't have any memory of the whole day. So even like getting up, having breakfast, going up the mountain, briefing, flying for two hours before the accident happened, I have no memory at all. Wow. Uh, so my last memory is the day before where the task was cancelled because some rain was coming in and then later on when it turned up again uh, the sun came out I took a tandem flight with my goddaughter. For one hour we flew around and people commented how we both were grinning when we came down and landed. And I brought her to the train station and that's my last memory. And the next thing uh, I remember is five days later, I uh, woke up, came out of the coma at uh, uh, the ICU, the intensive wow. uh, care unit in, in the hospital. So I don't really know actively what happened, but we, of course, this being a competition and me having all these instruments, we looked at the track quite intensively. Uh, we analyzed uh, what I did. Uh, so I can basically give a second-hand <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. second report of what happened or what I think what happened. But yeah, in short, I flew in a corner that was, I was able to soar it up. So it was on the upwind side, basically, but it was also downwind from another spine at half a kilometer further upwind. 
and I took one turn a little too deep into the lee side, into the downwind side, uh, got into trouble, got hit deep, a big sink, and to make it away, I turned 90 degrees away from the terrain, and then the track just drops straight down. So probably when I turned away from the terrain, I hit a real big turbulence. Uh, big parts of my wings collapsed. I somehow managed to stabilize direction. It never went around. Uh, but after four seconds, I hit the slope. And it's a pretty nasty slope. It's pretty steep with huge boulders. And I tumbled down another 20, 30 meters in that slope. And probably part of the injuries are from that second part. Wow. So it must yeah. be like, I, I don't know whether it's better or worse that you have to interpret what happened. Oh, way better, way better. Uh, I, I really, I'm very, very happy. I don't have memories of me falling down into that mountainside. Yeah, I guess for fear, I guess for, for yeah. fear. Memory. Yeah, and that must be really good for, for your future flying, definitely. Yeah, and also dealing with it now. I, I mean, I heard other stories of people repeatedly every night dreaming of whatever uh, injured them of that e e event. And I wouldn't need that. I think I'm way better off this way. Yeah, um, yeah. I, that doctors makes say sense. your body decides whether it remembers or not, and mine decided to not remember, and I'm really happy about that. Yeah. What about um, witnesses, people, other people in the comp, people who saw you, if you had any input no, the, them? the other pilots, I mean, I flew with Michael Siegel a little before that, and he basically turned left out into the valley, and I turned right into the mountains, and he commented that he thought, well, it was a little on the windy side, and he didn't feel like going through, uh, going into the mountains. Uh, he understood why I wanted to stay there and make more altitude rather than just pushing forward like everybody else. But he just didn't feel comfortable. He couldn't really say why. It was, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, he's a very experienced pilot. He listened to his gut and he decided not to do what I did. Everybody yeah. else was already gone at that time. Uh, I did. When I soared up, I got to the mountaintop and there was a hiker there and I flew by him. And I waved at him, apparently. I talked to him later on uh, on the phone. Uh, we waved at each other, so I must have been totally relaxed at that time. Yeah. Uh, the hiker tells me, he, after he waved at me, he turned around and looked at his map to see how he comes down, uh, gets down from the mountain. And while looking at the map, he hears this loud, ruffling noise behind him. He turns around and just sees the last tip of my glider disappear around the corner. And he thought, well, that's probably how this sport sounds. Didn't think anything <laughs> about it. Yeah. And started his descent. And later on came into this uh, mountainside uh, with those huge boulders. And he started jumping down the boulders, having fun. Comes around the corner and there I was lying and screaming and uh so, so he found you he, he's the guy who discovered you well at the same time this being the world cup and again i'm really happy this happened during the world cup yeah. we have live tracking so one uh member of the organization team was following the whole field on in the live tracking 
and they'd already noticed that my track had stopped at a very unusual place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had started calling me. I had not responded, and so they sent the helicopter there. But this hiker found me pretty much at the same time as that was going on. Uh, he sort of freaked out, and he remembered that a friend of his, uh, I think former partner of his, is a nurse and has just, had just started flying paragliders a couple of years ago. Wow. So he calls her. I found an injured paraglider pilot. What do I do? <laughs> now, the crazy bit is I know this woman. I know Sarah. And she's now the partner of another of a pilot friend of mine. And because of that, she was in this and this. She was at headquarters at, when he called her. Wow. And so she ran in, uh, told everybody, well, we found an injured pilot. And they said, yeah, we know. It's your helicopter's on the way. Please ask your friend who's up there to just stay with him and keep him calm. And he told me that was a hard job for 20 minutes, uh, forcing me to stay down. I, I was convinced I had to get up and walk down the mountain somehow. And but you're con- so you're conscious though at this point. You didn't. Yeah. Did you lose? Do you know if you lost consciousness at all, or you you don't know that? I do not know because I do not have any memory of all this. Yeah. I mean, I had apparently I had a slight concussion, and I kept repeating the same question over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Swiss German, and he doesn't speak Swiss German, so we could not really communicate <laughs> <laughs> there. Uh, but he he said he had to yell at me at times to make me sit down and stay quiet. Uh, and he was really relieved when after about 20 minutes the helicopter came and the doctors uh, took over. Wow. It's a crazy story. And to make the story even crazier, he works as a short order cook at my favorite restaurant in Dizentis. So two days before that, I had taken my goddaughter there to, to have burgers. And he had cooked burgers for me. <laughs> <laughs> the synchronicity in your accident is like unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really unbelievable, and the amount of luck that is involved, and like me being here and being able to talk about it and laugh about it, it's it's mind blowing, really. Yeah, I mean, I guess what like one of the things when these incidents happen, from an outsider's point of view. Of course, your immediate thing is, oh, shit, I hope everything's okay. I hope he's all right, blah, blah, blah. Then the next thing is, I guess you never know how people are going to be. Like yourself, you're quite open and you want to talk about it. Some people are are obviously going to be a bit more reserved and a bit more dismissive. And So I guess you never know the psychological impact of something mm-hmm. like this and how people deal with it. And I guess that's one of those things for you you don't know how long that's going to go on or if it's going to affect your flying until you fly. You're in that predicament now where you're, I guess you, you, you long to fly, you want to fly, but you cross that bridge when you come to it. Um, But it's very like, it's interesting your approach and your recall and the fact that you laugh about it and you can see the positive side, which is how I hope I would respond. But also you see other people who do go the other way, you know? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I've spent now altogether about four months in a rehab clinic where everybody who's there, all the patients there, they have gone through a very traumatic experience similar to mine. And you see the whole range of how people can react to that. 
So yeah, it, it is an interesting experience also from that aspect. You get to know things you you didn't need to care about before and you never cared about and now it's yeah. part of the life. So you wake up five days later. Uh, were you in an induced coma? They yeah, put you yeah, coma. they they yeah. induced me um, a coma to to save my uh, spinal cord mm -hmm. uh, because there have been some injuries. They, they were afraid if I moved, I would uh, make the the injury even worse. So they induced a coma, and then they did all the surgery, all the repairs while I was in that coma, and then they woke me up. So when I woke up from coma. All the repair work was done. Uh, all the drama was over, and my job was to get whole again. Yeah, which I guess is even better as well. <laughs> just like, yeah. this has happened. Now you're here. Let's go. Um, yeah. So, what were your what were your injuries when you woke up? What were you told when the doctor came in and told you? What did he say that actually happened? Uh, well, they. I think it was my brother who <laughs> who enumerated <laughs> the the things, and then over time, also the doctors. Uh, I mean. The, from the outside perspective, the worst is the broken vertebrae, mm -hmm. which had also injured some a little bit of the, uh, the spinal cord. Uh, so they had taken that out, replaced with a uh, with an implant. But that's really great. That's the one injury that does not affect me at all, uh, and yeah, I, I don't feel any pain there, and I can move, and everything is really perfect. It's amazing. How, how surgery went in that place, and it was a very sensitive place, how, how good they could repair that. Uh, that's certainly something that happened right on the impact. I mean, it's the classic paraglider injury. It's the first lumbar vertebra. Yeah. That's just uh, the weak link we have in our back that whenever you crash, that one goes. Uh, I also shattered my femur, and that probably, like, possibly happened while tumbling down. And it's not just a break, it's really, it was in a thousand pieces. Wow. So they took the bigger pieces and tied them back together with some wire and all. Uh, drove a big nail down the, the center of the femur. <laughs> and you make it sound like someone's building a fence. They wrapped some wire <laughs> around it and hit a big nail. <laughs> I don't know if you have a lot of experience with surgeons, but... You would usually think of them as people who, yeah, yeah, they're probably also good at building fences. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. So, so that was that part, and the last big part was uh, was my foot, my right foot. Uh, it had been split in two, and later on, I found out that probably it got stuck between two rocks, and then because I tumbled down, uh, you can imagine. Yeah. It was an interesting x-ray. They told me somebody had to hold the two pieces into the camera because they were not able to do an x-ray otherwise. Oh, bloody. I just, I literally, I'm, I, as you were telling me, I'm, I'm like wiggling <laughs> my foot. Yeah. <laughs> wiggling my foot to imagine. I don't want to imagine what that must be like, but I yeah, literally yeah. sat and wiggled my foot just to check. That. So I guess it, it snapped in half along the length, not along the width. Yeah, underneath the. Oh no! Now I'm missing the term. Uh, but yeah, with, within the the joint, it yeah. split along the length. Yeah. Uh, but when I came to, it was fixed. It was in one piece. Uh, was there even a cast? I don't. No, I didn't think there was a cast. Just some 
bandage around it. And it looked like a foot, a little swollen, but not much more. Mm-hmm. It was a miracle. So, and, and also, I mean, there's still some stuff going on right now, six months down the road, but uh, yeah, imagine spraining your ankle like really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of feeling I have now. So, and I had that before, bad landings. And it usually, yeah, sprains take a year until they're gone. And yeah. I'm basically on that that path right now with that. Yeah. Uh, then uh, they, they started mentioning all the minor injuries, which were, yeah, many broken ribs. I broke my sternum. Imagine oh. that. That's really, a, yeah, it's quite a big bone. How do you break that? But, From yeah. somebody who... I don't like getting punched or hit there, so to break it, <laughs> oh, a kick to the sternum is one of the worst things you can yeah. experience in your life. Yeah. So to break yeah. the sternum, wow. Yeah, yeah. that's quite. I, I, I figured you can sympathize with that. <laughs> and the last injury we discovered two weeks after the accident was I had also broken my pinky finger. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the things, it's like, um, you guys seem to have forgotten this. <laughs> yeah, that's about how it went. I was like, yeah, this is always hurting when I use it. Uh, maybe it's broken too. And they went, oh, you're right. Yeah, it's also broken. <laughs> <laughs> Why? The, the, so the, the da- I mean, the damage is extensive, but mm. also what you seem to have done is you seem to have damaged many parts that are going to take a long time to heal. Like the secondary the secondary uh, effects of them are going to be quite prolonged because you broke your foot in half. Now, anything you want to do mobility-wise is going to involve you having a foot that functions. Mm-hmm. So if you'd have broke your wrist in half, it's not so bad because yeah. you can do lots of other things. But you break your foot in half. Is it the foot and the femur on the same leg? No, of course not. <laughs> that would be too easy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, creating a training program and a therapy plan for myself was quite the challenge for my physical therapist and uh, the rehab clinic because uh, yeah we we wanted to move we wanted to get things going reactivate the muscles and everything but whatever she wanted to do there was some something stopping her from doing that because there was an injury there and it took a while until we got to a level where we could actually you know, go into this training camp that I had envisioned. <laughs> but on the other hand yeah it sounds really crazy but on the other on the other hand a crash like that from 50 meters a big collapse we don't know how much but a big collapse 50 meters from the ground smashing down into a very steep rocky mountainside usually pilots don't survive that or they come out paraplegic yeah, exactly. And neither of and that. So I'm really, really, really happy about how things turned out. Yeah, and also, you know, you were in a comp environment as well, so you got medical medical um, treatment quite quickly. The helicopter was already on his way. Plus, you had your man there to to keep you on the floor and stop you injuring yourself. Because the next thing could have been you try to stand up and you fall even further. So yeah. Like, or just by, by standing up, I, the chances are I would have injured my spinal cord more than it is injured yeah. now. And that would have been disastrous. Yeah, exactly. So it's one like 
it's a, it's as bad an injury as you can get and still have a positive outcome from it. <laughs> I mean, it's, this, this was, I guess you're considering this a positive outcome considering what could have happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, uh, that's what I keep saying. It's like I, I was extremely lucky and I'm happy with how things are now. It could have been so much worse. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's... Um, I should imagine you've had some pretty dark days psychologically, some days that have gotten got to you. And but I guess then your positive mindset and the way that you've approached it is going to be and has been a big part of your healing. Uh, your heal that 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 positive psychology is going to be a massive part of getting better and the want to get better. Yeah, and I mean most most days I didn't have to, but on the days when I didn't feel like it feel very good it was a conscious decision to stay positive um, fortunately there was not that many there were not that many days where this was really necessary that i had to push myself to you know, stick with it and stay positive uh, i mean and every now and then you have to allow yourself to feel how you feel that's okay i i had bad days and i had good days but uh yeah i, I basically i made a game out of that and making games other things helps you deal with things uh at the rehab clinic get down to breakfast uh i always took the wheelchair for that for logistic reasons even when i was ready to walk with crutches mm -hmm. and that was always the test for me how the day was going so on a good day i was so fast i had to actually slow down the wheelchair in front of the sliding doors <laughs> otherwise i'd smash into them because they were too slow for me that was the good days oh wow it's a good day today and on the, on the bad days, the guys walking on crutches would pass me while I was in my wheelchair going oh. towards the restaurant. So that, that was the bandwidth, and that's helped me. Uh, and also smiled about myself. Okay, you're a slow day today. You're being passed now by those three ladies on the walker. And so, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I yeah, I mean, that... that. that yeah, they're going to be the things that really help. I mean, it's you can have as many positive people around you as you like and as many people patting you on the back and saying good for you. But if you can't be the guy who's making yeah. a game and if you can't be the guy who gets out of bed and says, listen, we're not having a day like we had yesterday. We're yesterday was yesterday. We're not having a day like that today. Boom, we got and you get up and you get on. You know, it's going to be a lot harder unless you can be that guy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also always about, uh, maybe it's the perfectionist again, this, yeah, I don't want to die a day like yesterday, so what can I do to change that? What can I, how can we improve so things get better again? And that was a constant process. Uh, myself working, working with everybody there, with the therapist, uh, I got a really great compliment from my physical therapist at the very end, where she told me, we were working as a team. It was not uh, this therapist-patient relationship. It was like we were eye-to-eye -eye and working as a team. Uh, that's what I had been striving for. And she actually commented on that. It was a big compliment to me. And that's also how I approached doctors. I came with a long list of thick questions and suggestions every time we met because uh, I wanted to do my part to, to move this forward. And... Yeah, if things were not good, I thought hard. I had a lot of time to think about how to improve things. So I, I thought about how to improve things.
which is better because the more time you're thinking about doc can we do this can we do this it shows your desire to to get back to where you were it shows your desire to move forward if you're sat with no questions and you're constantly asking well will i be able to do this or will i this or can i you're sort of stuck in this stuck in this mode of i'm helpless in all of this yeah and i guess yeah. the attitude you took was I'm proactive. How do we get to this? Where can we go? Can we do this? Can we try this? And I think that's mm. a, a great mindset to have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what wing helped. were you flying at the time, Jorg? Oh, the usual, Nanso 3. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's in no way, shape, or form to say that the wing is to blame in any way, shape, in any way at all. Um, I guess from the same as what happens most of the time, pilot error is the biggest factor in your accident. Um, lack of judgment, a misjudgment, not foreseeing. However, you want to phrase it, but the wing is not is not the issue. It was just curiosity so. for me. Yeah, it was just curious. I was just curious as to mm. what you were flying, and you had lots of experience on that wing as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hundreds of hours. Yeah, exactly. I just it was actually just, my second pencil three. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I just from it just because. Not many people survive an, an incident like yours and are in a position to talk so frankly about it. And although you have no recollection of what happened, but, you know, not many are, are in a position to, to speak to other paragliders and say, like, this is what happened. I believe it was a mistake by me. I believe this is where I went wrong. I don't think, you know, I'd flown the wing before. I'd had collapses on the wing before. I knew how to fly the wing. I don't think the wing was the problem. I think. And I think that's what you're basically saying is that you accept the responsibility for what happened. Yeah. And that's, that's also, you know, one of the reasons why I was not too unhappy to get out of karate was that in those competitions, the outcome also all often depends on other people, either your opponent or the judges. Yeah. And I really got to appreciate the law that in paragliding the outcome only depends on myself i mean there are very 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 rare circumstances where somebody crashes into you or your wing or so but that's basically yeah it's almost not happening so whatever happens to me it's me myself and i uh in the good and in the bad and i i like that i prefer it that way around and that's that's how it is in this situation as well yeah yeah i think it's a a great way to approach life it just assume as much responsibility as you can and i i always say to people like in life try and find a way to blame yourself for everything because if you can <laughs> find a way to blame yourself you can work on putting something right if somebody else is to blame you can't do anything there's not yeah. i can't control other people so the all i can control is myself if i can find a way to to blame myself or find a way to to change little bits about the things that i did that's mm -hmm. the, the key to progression, right? Yeah. 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 Yep. Blaming is one part. The other one is being proud of yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, that's basically, I, 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 at one point I decided I want to come out of this whole rehab process. And when I look back, I want to be able to be proud of myself, how I handled that. And that certainly helped. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, to this point, health-wise, I think you can definitely be proud um talking about it wise you can definitely be proud listening to the story is fantastic <laughs> well some so what's your plans moving forward if uh, if you had anything <laughs> said to you about um 
getting back to flying or is it something you're not even thinking about yet? You just have little goals that you're trying to set yourself or? Well, my next goal is uh, Easter is coming up. It's like a month from now. And I want to take a walk without crutches on Easter. Wow. <laughs> there we go. On Easter, I just want to eat so much chocolate that I can't yeah. walk really. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's 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 kind of it's probably yeah I don't know it's sort of a tradition around here families go out on walks on Easter because the weather yeah. is nice and if the weather is nice I want to take a walk without crutches so that's my next goal uh, regarding flying really I yeah I I don't make definite plans but since I uh, yeah. Well, I, I made a voucher for my therapist to take her on a tandem flight. <laughs> and we agreed that this should happen sometime this year. So wow. I'll be working on that. That's that's a superb goal. You know, that's because you have the full support of your therapist. Is not because, like, you know, one of the big issues would be you setting goals that are unrealistic to your rehab or pushing yourself too far, mm -hmm. but for your therapist to be in on that as well. And that's a great goal because it shows that this year there's real yeah. progression to do what you want to do. I guess w would flying be one of the things that you want to do most of all? Not right now. Not right, <laughs> right now. It's walking without crutches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That really slows me down. <laughs> Uh, how far yeah. are you? How far are you going with crutches right now? Uh, Twelve thousand steps was my record. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so I, I can go basically indefinitely. I'm really at the verge of being able to walk without crutches. Uh, I do it a couple steps here in the apartment, but uh, it just I'm lacking a little bit of stability and and, mm -hmm. and power for that. Um, that's why I say in four weeks down the road, I should be able to take at least a Sunday stroll, uh, an Easter stroll uh, without them. And then then we'll see how it goes from there. Superb. It's absolutely amazing. It's uh, <laughs> to, hear, to hear how far you've come and you're here where you're now talking and you're looking at going out and walking right crutches shortly. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm also looking forward to the flying part for sure. It's not the thing I want to do most. Mm, yeah, it's. Uh, but I, I mean, the question came up a couple times: Will you ever fly again? Yeah. For instance, my hairdresser, she flat out forbids me to ever, ever, ever go flying again. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, at the rehab clinic, uh, you'll like this with your uh, birds of prey history. Uh, in the area of the rehab clinic, I think it's about 40 or 50 red-tailed kites who live there. Wow. It's huge. And when it's really windy, they use the clinic itself for, uh, for soaring. They soar the sides of the clinic. Wow. And as soon as there is one ray of sun, the fields out front of the clinic, they, yeah, you would never think they, they'd feed thermals, but there are thermals there apparently because the red tail kites, they go there and sometimes you have 20, 25 of them in one thermal going together. Amazing. And I would just sit there and watch them. And I couldn't stop watching them. 
and it was so yeah so moving and also that's when i decided yeah probably we'll fly again <laughs> because yeah. I, I couldn't take my eyes of them and i was basically putting myself always in their their position and yeah now turn right now you're thermaled it more to the left no no <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pulling on imaginary brake strings like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you um, um, you do you think you'll talk to somebody psychologically in the build up to this, or you 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 feel happy with where you are? Uh, that changes. Uh, yeah. When I got to the clinic in first, it's part of their normal program that you talk to a psychiatrist there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had I don't know five or six sessions once a week. And in the end, he told me that I went through the really textbook progression psychologically. Like the first time we talked about it, I, I could barely talk. I was weeping the whole time. Every time I explained anything about what was going on, uh, I was weeping. And then four, five, six weeks down the road, I was making jokes about it. And he said, yeah, that's textbook. That's how people uh, yeah. go through things like that. And so at the end, he was, yeah, you're making now jokes about it, so you don't need to see me anymore. It's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was then. And now that things are dragging on and, yeah, some things like I had to do another surgery for my leg because it wasn't growing together in the beginning. So uh, sometimes it's wearing me down a little bit. And, yeah, talking to somebody can be nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a big... I'm a big advocate of, of uh, psychologists anyway. In my fighting career, I feel that I've lost fights um, due to psychological reasons. Mm-hmm. I've had fights and literally I've been led on my back being punched and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do for shopping the next day. It's, <laughs> and that's, it's not a joke. I've been, like, literally been there. I've been like, or I've been led there thinking like, oh, in a minute, I'll get... I wonder what a second round. Well, I'll be tired. Will I be tired in the second round? And you're like, what the? What is going on? So oh, I'm yeah. a big advocate of psychology, yeah. and especially with yeah. the flying elements. But then take being a paraglider pilot completely out of it. Like you're allowed to feel like shit now. You know, yeah. you had a big, something <laughs> big happen. You're allowed to have bad days. And I think, um, yeah, being open to the to the fact of talking to somebody. You know, even if you don't, even if you feel like you're in a great space, talking to someone about your positive mood yeah. is going to be just as beneficial. <laughs> like, what do you think I'm doing right now, Wesley? <laughs> <laughs> don't take any advice from me. That's my number one piece of advice. <laughs> no, it's not about the advice. It's about the talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that's one thing I can accommodate. I can talk. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Uh, I'm... Like, I mean, we, we have some mental coaches in the Swiss League that take care of us from, from the competition pilot side. I, I, I'll think about that, whether I need something like that when, when I get closer to actually sure. being ready to go flying. I mean, ultimately, I will only know when I'm strapped in and ready to go. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I, I'll see that when, when, when we're there. Yeah, and until then, the Valerium will get a really good looking at as well. So that's good. <laughs> the software for the Valerium will be yeah. the best on the planet. I, I, I was thinking so for a while. And then, I mean, just now looking back over the last six months, I mean, of course, in the beginning it was hospitals and rehab. And then I was home for two months. Then I had to go back into hospital. But I have not programmed a single line of code 
since then. So I, I need to get back into that. But I, I found that being able to work uh, at a desk, concentrate for a longer period of time, that's also almost like a muscle and it atrophies like all the other muscles as well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm back to two hours per day where I can do some office work. <laughs> Catching up on all the accounting of my cell and my private accounting <laughs> over the last few months. But working for, for the company, yeah, I can do small things, but working on the P1 and improving the code there, I hope so soon, but I can't make any promises. Yeah. You don't, I mean, the thing is, you don't want to commit or concentrate on something and then find out there is hindering progress, but feel a responsibility to, to do it. You know, you're, yeah. you're, I think you're much better in the situation that you're doing yeah. for what you're doing. You know, when I got released from rehab this time around two weeks ago, somehow I had misunderstood one of the doctors and I thought they'd cleared me for working two days a week. And so I came home and on Monday I sat on my desk and I started working and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I could never do more than an hour, hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to do three hours a day. And I got so stressed out. I got really annoyed with myself and stressed out because they say I'm ready now to work 40% and I can't even do that. And then on the third day on Wednesday, just sorting through papers, I found the, the release they they'd signed and it was still a hundred percent unable to work <laughs> ah yeah oh now <laughs> that just... makes sense <laughs> that makes sense yeah i was pretty happy and much more relaxed after that yeah yeah the pressure the pressure you put on yourself had been relieved and that's that's yeah, the and i'm pretty good at that putting pressure on myself uh, i'm good at that so uh, <laughs> having others tell me not to helps yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, listen, Jörg, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up. I'm gonna let you go, mate. Sure. I guess talking to me must be uh, as hard a work as sitting down in programming code. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Don't underestimate yourself, Wesley. <laughs> no, it was was a pleasure. Uh, oh, the was... pleasure is all my honest. I can't emphasize enough, uh, mate. Your your positivity throughout telling your story has really come across, and I think that's going to be great for anyone who, who has been or ends up in a situation similar to yours, your positivity and your outlook has been superb. Um, hearing about your whole story has been brilliant. So honestly, the pleasure is mine. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wesley. And I'll see you um, soon on a hill somewhere flying. Definitely. I'll say goodbye now and then, but stay there, mate, and we'll say goodbye yeah, personally. Yeah, sure.